0: Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. I'm John Perrine, and today we continue with the fourth episode in our study of Revelation called The Politics of Jesus. This episode is being released the Monday after the 2020 presidential election, yet I'm recording it here the week before. I don't know what the world looks like as you're listening to this, or how you feel about the politics that have just occurred. But I know this, we need the Bible. Deep, thoughtful theological reflection on the Bible as a guide not just to our salvation and our spirituality, but to our politics as well. In this episode, as we look at Revelation 6-7 with the trumpets and the four horsemen, I think you'll be surprised to find that the Bible is willing to engage our world of judgment, but wants to shift our gaze away from the binary partisan thinking, instead towards the politics of Jesus. Specifically, I'm going to talk about those saints, robed in white, that we find standing with the Lamb, and what it means for our own politics of forgiveness and non-retaliation in a partisan world. So let's dive in. You've been journeying with us. We're on episode 4 of a study of Revelation. And I want to start with an orientation and recap. The book of Revelation is such a whirlwind with so much going on. And then we're throwing all of the heightened topics and themes of politics on top of it. That in these first 3 episodes, it's easy to lose the thread of what is happening in this apocalyptic book. So at some point this week, if you open up the book of Revelation and read through it, though it is very confusing at first glance, closer inspection will reveal a very logical and structured flow. John actually began with an introduction, that's what we talked about in episode 1, coming from Revelation 1 that reads much like a public statement would when a sovereign sends a messenger or a prophet to address his subjects. We're immediately amazed because the description John gives us of our sovereign describes this overwhelming image of flaming eyes, shock white hair, the son of man meets ancient of days from the book of Daniel, who we're told walks among the lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hands. This, this sovereign, addresses those very seven lampstands, which turns out to be seven very real, very historical churches. We covered his address in our second episode, and found these churches were struggling with the very real social political dynamics that I described as three temptations to affirm, to blend, or to break under the politics of Caesar. Yet these churches are called to overcome these temptations by persisting, relying upon, and even enacting the politics of Jesus their king. But John wasn't done. In Revelation 4-5, very much connected, to Jesus' call to overcome, John is going to take us to the throne room of God, where the saints and these four Ezekiel-like angelic creatures are worshiping, but also wondering who is worthy to take the scroll? This is the political dilemma. If the churches are called to overcome, who is worthy? How does one overcome? What do we hope in if the politics of Caesar seems so mammoth and overwhelming? And even as John is standing there, weeping at the magnitude of suffering and struggle and loss, John is pointed to see the Lamb standing as one eternally slain. We realize here, in the throne room of God, the foundation of the world rests upon our crucified Lord, whose broken body became the atonement that was reconciling us And would restore all of creation. I know this book is challenging, but it's also stunningly beautiful. It lifts our gaze and helps us see. It is endlessly dynamic and complex. I mean, the church has been wrestling with, pondering, and applying the politics of this book for the past 2,000 years and still hasn't gotten close to reaching the bottom of it. The vision, the letters, and the lamb still speak as much to our celebrityism, our capitalism, and our racism today as they were speaking back when Revelation was written. Yet, if you're tracking with the flow of where John has taken us so far, like me, you have to be wondering, where are we going next? What follows this breathtaking vision of the throne? What other political statement is King Jesus going to make that may or may not align with our own personal political preferences? Before we talk about Revelation 6 to 7, the next two chapters we'll be covering in this episode, however, I want to step out of the text and back into contemporary politics, specifically American politics. Because there is, of course, a story that's been playing out before us, even in this past election cycle, and that story is the highly contested, increasingly divisive contest that takes place in a two-party system between Democrats and Republicans. Have you ever paused to wonder why the Democrats hold to the policies they do, and why the Republicans hold to the policies they do? There's obviously been a lot written on this, but if I were to try to keep this story simple and to the point, the Democratic Party we know today was rooted in two major cultural shifts. One happened in the 1930s as Franklin Delano Roosevelt inherited the stock market crash of 1925 and the resulting Great Depression, and it caused FDR to rethink economic and social policy. The second cultural shift was the tumultuous cultural revolutions of the 1960s, including the Civil Rights Movement, the Sexual Revolution, and the strong anti-war sentiment against the Vietnam War that also happened to include the charisma of John F. Kennedy, culminating in his tragic assassination. These two shifts gave us a party that was socially engaged, focused on government regulation and business and touted credentials of having a totally equal humanistic vision, where all divisions and systemic oppression would be eradicated in favor of a just and equitable society. In contrast, the Republican Party inherited the strengths of a powerful post-World War II economy in the 1950s that saw the emergence of the suburbs and a strong middle class. The ongoing crisis of the Cold War, in which American military power and the strength of America's capitalistic economy was seen as the barrier to a spread of global communism headed by the USSR, and it culminated in the charismatic presidency of Ronald Reagan, a former movie star turned politician who rose to power at the same time that evangelicalism was on the rise, and as evangelical leaders saw an increasingly secular Europe move away from a Judeo-Christian ethic, his leadership helped combat the shockwaves of the 1960s cultural revolutions that were still being absorbed. So this coalition emerged between economic and religious leaders that presented a party that valued the family unit, the middle class, was pro-life, pro-business, and believed the strength of America's economy and military would be best counterbalanced by the strength of strong family values and a strong middle class at home. None of this information is probably new to you. In fact, as I will argue shortly, you likely have some intuitive preference in which your gut resonates strongly with one of those stories and pulls back slightly in disgust at the other. If the point is that both parties have a story that makes sense of their policies and argues strongly for the need to assert their values. So if my first political question for you is, have you ever wondered where the political party's policies and values come from? My second, even more important political question for you is, Have you ever wondered why you likely preference one of those parties over the other? This is precisely the question moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt asked in his 2011 book called The Righteous Mind. The question he essentially asks is, what is the psychology of our political preference? Is it possible to trace the patterns of personality, temperament, and beliefs that would result in someone favoring the Democratic Party over the Republican Party? or the Republican party over the Democratic party. So he's gonna offer us three key insights that he believes are demonstrated through psychological studies on why we come to believe the politics we believe. Hate's first argument is that though many people wanna believe they've come to their political preference on their own, they actually are responding to some communal or social pressure which has shaped their opinion. Now, this isn't an extreme idea. Most psychologists would agree quite readily here with hate but the studies he did on self-esteem were fascinating. So one of my favorite was done by a man named Mark Leary in the 1990s. Leary was curious about what he called the sociometer, that is, the sense each of us have to gauge and respond our behaviors according to the opinions of those around us. Inevitably, some people claim to be mavericks, as he called them, and they view themselves as being unaffected by the perceptions or influence of others. So Mark Leary put this claim to the test. He asked a large group of students to rate their self-esteem and how much they thought it depended on what other people thought of them. Then he picked out these students who, question after question, said they were completely unaffected by the opinions of others and compared them to students who said they were strongly affected by the opinions of others. The test he did was to have each person sit alone in a room to talk about themselves for five minutes as they spoke into a microphone. At the end of each minute, they saw a number flash on a screen in front of them. And the number they were told indicated how much another person listening in from another room wanted to interact with them in the next part of the study. With ratings from one to seven, seven as the best, you can imagine how it would feel to sit there talking into a microphone as every minute you see the numbers drop while you're talking. Four, three, two, three, two, each minute as the room responded to what you were saying. In truth, Leary had rigged it. He gave some people declining ratings while other people got rising ratings. Four, five, six, five, 6. As the ratings were flashing on the screen, the participant was asked revealing questions that reflected self-esteem. For instance, how likely would you be to ask a stranger out to lunch? And the results were fascinating, if not entirely surprising. Every participant saw shifting responses that matched the rating numbers showing up on the screen, regardless of their own self-assessment. In fact, further studies have shown that the only people who don't respond at all to social cues are classified as psychopaths, having no shame or guilt subconscious reaction to the sociometer around them. Now, Hate's point with all of this is simply that our politics are influenced by the community we surround ourselves with. Because everyone has a sociometer that is gauging their values and behaviors in relation to those around them. We like to think our politics are somehow immune, but they're not which leads to hate's second argument. All of our politics suffer from some form of confirmation bias in which our brains are actively confirming ideas, policies, and people that we want to support and are actively discrediting the ideas, policies, and people that we want to discredit. Hate describes this process of our brains as the in-house press secretary, an aptly political metaphor, with the idea being that once a policy has been issued from our house, our brain, the secretary will find some way to defend or praise it. Psychologists now have file cabinets full of findings on motivated reasoning, showing the many tricks people use to reach the conclusions they want to reach. When subjects are told that an intelligence test gave them a low score, they choose to read articles criticizing rather than supporting the validity of IQ tests. Another interesting example is that when people read a fictitious scientific study that reports a link between caffeine consumption and breast cancer, Women who are heavy coffee drinkers find more flaws in the study than do men and less caffeinated women. Another study done by Pete Ditto at the University of California at Irvine asked subjects to lick a strip of paper to determine whether they have a serious enzyme deficiency. He found that people wait longer for the paper to change color, even though it never does, when a color change is desirable than when it indicates a deficiency and those who get the undesirable prognosis find more reasons why the test might not be accurate. For example, my mouth was unusually dry today. If this is true for individuals, it's even more true when it comes to the groups we belong to. Several studies have documented the attitude polarization effect that happens when you give a single body of information to people with different partisan leanings. Liberals and conservatives actually move further apart when they read about research on whether the death penalty deters crime or when they rate the quality of arguments made by candidates in a presidential debate, or when they evaluate arguments about affirmative action or gun control. Back in the simpler times of 2004, during the heat of the US presidential election, Drew Weston used FMRI machines to track what was happening in partisan brains when they saw information they either liked or didn't like. He recruited 15 highly partisan Democrats and 15 highly partisan Republicans and brought them into the scanner one at a time to watch 18 sets of slides. The first slide would show a statement from either George W. Bush or John Kerry that was controversial. So for instance, Weston showed a slide of George Bush praising Ken Lay, the CEO of Enron, before the massive fraud and later collapse. Bush on the slide says, I love the man. When I'm president, I plan to run the government like a CEO. Ken Lay and Enron are a model of that. So then the next slide pops up, which reinforces and clarifies the possible scandal of the statement. For instance, in this case, the slide would say, Mr. Bush now avoids any mention of Ken Lay and is critical of Enron when asked. At this point in the study, Republicans are squirming. In fact, the fMRI revealed the emotion-related area of the brain, started humming, activating threat, anxiety, and associations with punishment. However, the following slide would always let the partisan off the hook. So in this case with George Bush, the next slide resolved the contradiction, saying something like, people who know the president report that he feels betrayed by Ken Lay and was genuinely shocked to find that Enron's leadership had been corrupt. This final slide for the Republican would light up the pleasure region of their brain and a small hit of dopamine would literally be released. According to Weston's study, a partisan mind literally gets a hit a spike anytime they receive information that confirms their predisposition. But here's perhaps what's most intriguing. Some of the areas known to play a key role in reasoning, such as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, did not activate as the compromising slides were being shown. Instead, the reasoning part of the brain only came online after the dopamine hit of release when the compromising situation was removed. Now, I realize that's a lot of brain science, but its findings pack a punch for how we think about politics. When you associate with a party, which, like it or not, all of us do to some degree, and that party is questioned, compromised, or challenged, it's likely that the threat, fear, and punishment region of your brain begins whirring, and you immediately move, not into high reasoning and careful consideration mode, but into high threat mode. Yet whenever data is presented, either positively for your party or negatively against the other party, your brain will quite literally hum into the pleasure region, and a small hit of dopamine will reward the confirmation of what you already believed. So when Fox News deplores the radicalized left and cites evidence of family breakdown in America, Republicans literally get a hit of dopamine from watching the information. No wonder Fox News is the most watched cable network in America. It has figured out how to deliver pleasurable information to those with its partisan leanings. Yet it could equally be said that when late-night talk hosts show clips of Donald Trump doing something foolish, or the New York Times writes an article about Republican malfeasances, Democrats are not carefully considering the data, but are instead themselves also getting small hits of dopamine. Over and over again, I've watched this play out at the Thanksgiving table. I'm sure you have too. As one relative brings their stack of facts, figures, and studies, only to flash with anger when their party is questioned or flush with appreciation when someone else argues with their defense. Our brain is quite literally our in-house press secretary, and it works hard to push away uncomfortable data and instead confirm and praise the policies it has committed to. So what's Haidt's final claim? Well, he makes the case, and I think it's a strong one, that the Republican Party and Democratic Party are so strong in America because they literally use the power of both social pressure and the pleasure threat hits in the brain to activate personalities that are already predisposed to either conservatism or liberalism. This is where Haidt's findings are contested, though I have a hard time not tracking with him here. He notes new studies in genetics, particularly studies of twins, that are finding our ideologies tend to be more innate than we often think. So non-identical twins raised in separate households often have diverging personalities and vote different directions. But genetically identical twins, sharing the same genes, even when raised in completely different environments, demonstrate consistently aligned temperaments and even voting behaviors. What Hayd thinks this is saying is that you, from your birth, carry certain dispositional traits. These traits, such as threat sensitivity, novelty seeking, extroversion, and conscientiousness, operate as kinds of adjustment dials that regulate how you respond to, and anticipate the environment you're in. It's not that your temperament controls or defines you, but it certainly guides you. So the example hate uses is one of fraternal, not identical, twins, who are born and raised in the exact same environment. Yet studies are showing that while one twin might be more aware of threats, more reserved and quiet, more studious, the other, who is extroverted and drawn towards novelty, yet is also incredibly sensitive towards criticism, are going to both go different directions And likely will vote differently based on their dispositions. So it's likely that the one twin who loves novelty, is conscientious and extroverted, will likely move to a more populated area, will try to get a job in the arts, or at least in their urban setting, and will probably end up voting Democrat. Even as the shy reserve twin, who likely stays behind in their town to get a stable job that's consistent and reliable, when the time comes will likely vote Republican. Hate makes clear that there are all kinds of exceptions and people are inevitably individuals who surprise even themselves. Yet I couldn't help but wonder, as I read Hate's example, in my own family, at how consistent dispositions towards things like novelty, conscientiousness, and sensitivity result in those family members voting Democrat, while other family members drawn more towards threat sensitivity, reserve, tradition, and loyalty seem to vote Republican. Of course, each of us are shaped by our environment, and of course we want to confirm that which we believe to be true. Wouldn't it make sense that even our very dispositions expressed in our personalities that we inherited at birth also play a part in explaining how we naturally lean one direction or another? Of course, each of us has agency and makes choices, but I'm humbled as I read hate study to see that our choices are being made on a kind of slanted table in which each of us is drawn to assume our politics are right and should be self-evident to those we disagree with, while ironically the exact same thing is happening in the person we disagree with and how they view their politics and what they think about us. My hope is that at this point, like me, you're feeling a little humbled right now. I think humbled is a good place to start in our politics. Other studies have shown that when conditions are set where neither party feels threatened, It's possible for more careful consideration, open-minded discussion, and even change. We do not need to despair that our politics or the politics of our neighbor we disagree with are set in stone. Instead, we should be humbled that there are powerful forces working within and without to confirm that which we already believe. Which leads us back to our passage in Revelation. I realize I've taken us on a winding road, but I think our political detour is necessary for what would otherwise be a challenging passage. If you've noticed, I've brought up our partisan world and have talked about the psychology of confirmation bias and communal pressure. These are very real forces on our politics and would have been very real forces for the churches John was writing to. So, how are we to navigate the partisan world of our politics as a Christian? John is going to depict a very strong vision that proceeds from the throne room. I'm picking up the text here in Revelation 6, 1 2. It says this Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, if you recall, the lamb was given a scroll. In the ancient world, it was common, particularly with wills, to seal the scroll, often with several seals, to ensure that no one tampered with your inheritance rights. And so upon the benefactor's passing, you would gather and only then would you break the seals to reveal the revelation of inheritance that each family member was to receive. However, though that's helpful background, we don't really know what is written on this scroll. Some say it might be the inheritance of eternal life. Others suggest it's the book of history, thus each seal is a key event in history. Or others have suggested this is actually the Lamb's book of life, where the names of the saints are written, and each seal is therefore judgment for those who are in Christ but who have been killed by this point. It's hard to say. But what is clear is that each seal, as it's broken, is culminating towards Christ's return. As I'm sure you can guess, some view these seals as unfolding chronologically, so they are depicting end-time events. Others hold them more symbolic and loose. There's a valid case to be made for both, but what fascinates me most is how these seals would have been understood in their own day. When I picture the Roman Empire, I always assume it was completely stable and under complete imperial rule. Yet one of the great rivals and threats to the Roman Empire was found in the East by what used to be the Persian Empire, in John's day known as the Parthians. The Parthians were particularly fearsome in battle and known as exceptionally good horsemen, many of whom even had the ability to fire arrows while riding backwards. This Persian Parthian legendary status as fearsome horsemen in battle shows up a couple times across the Old Testament. There's the potential antichrist-like figure of Gog in Ezekiel 39, and he's interestingly depicted as a rider who shoots his bow. Then there's this other passage in Zechariah 1, 8-11, which probably forms a background here to the vision we're about to see, anticipating legendary angelic horsemen like the Persians who patrol the earth and enact the judgment of God. So in verse two, we find a white horse whose rider has a bow and who is wearing a crown and who we're told came out conquering and to conquer. This horse surprisingly generates the most debate between the four horsemen as to what it might literally be referring to. But if you were a Roman, I'm not sure you're even all that bogged down in specifics because all you need to know is that a horseman who rides in with a bow and a crown is bad news for the politics of Caesar And that means a lot of bad news for you as a citizen of Rome. So here's where the vision continues. This is Revelation 6, three to four. When he opened the second scroll, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. If you just sit with the imagery here again, you got bright red that immediately makes you think of bloodshed. And we're told this horseman is permitted to take peace from the earth. The politics of Caesar always boasted that by its sword, it had established the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome over all the earth. But this seal and the following judgment would take peace from earth with an even greater sword. One wonders if many of the brutal and bloody civil struggles that happened in the 60s AD that happened in Israel in the destruction of the temple, and that would soon occur again and again across Roman history, might not have come to mind for those reading this warning. Yet John is going to continue with a third seal and a third horseman. This is Revelation 6, 5-6. It says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked and beheld a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. The third horse is black and would seem to represent a coming famine. The pair of scales in the rider's hand is what would have been used in the marketplace for an exchange of goods. The measuring out of a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius represent high inflation and an extremely desperate food shortage. Yet it's worth pointing out famines and food shortages would often have been assumed by Christians and non-Christians alike to be associated with some kind of judgment from God. It's possible that this food shortage is a result of the war and bloodshed from the previous two horsemen, or perhaps it's just a natural catastrophe on its own. Yet even in this third horseman, there is a hidden mercy as the voice cries out, Do not harm the oil and wine. If you were in a war, it was common for the enemy to steal your crops and burn your lands, particularly crops like wheat and barley, and it would wipe out your resources and economy for that year. But even the worst of enemies were careful to spare olive trees and vineyards. Barley and grain can grow back in a year, but vines take at least 3 years before they produce grapes again, and olive trees normally take a staggering 17 years. Before oil can be produced from them. Thus, even while coming in judgment, there's this sense in Revelation when you look closely that God has mercy. He is moving through judgment for a reason, and this reason will continue to become more and more clear. Here's our fourth horseman. This is Revelation 6, verses 7 to 8. It says When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and beheld, A pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This fourth horse is described by a strange word in the Greek that either means green or more likely pale, as my translation has it. The rider is the first given a name, Death, and we're told that Hades follows him. This horseman, perhaps the culmination of the other three or a distinct event in itself, is given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and disease and even creatures themselves. If you're curious about why that final list was given, some commentators note echoes of judgments coming from Ezekiel 5 and 14, while others have possibly noted an allusion with wild beasts to the fate that will soon be suffered by Christians in the Colosseum. Regardless at this point, you have to be wondering, what are we supposed to make of these four horsemen and this string of judgments? I mean, we are Christians living in the 21st century, and only the most radical with a strong end time bent seem preoccupied by horsemen and judgment. This really is the heart of the challenge in reading Revelation. In some ways, this is the challenge to being a Christian in the 21st century. Most Christians I know would be uncomfortable with the thought of a God who unleashes violent judgment upon the world. There can be this sense then in reading Revelation where I feel so safe, so protected, and so removed from any judgment by God that I dislike the idea of a God who is judging others. Do we really want to be like those Christians who wonder whether the coronavirus is God's judgment on the world? Do we really want to be like those Christians who at any natural disaster? begin talking about the sins that meant the people suffering surely deserved what was coming to them. It's rather unfortunate that such Christians put a bad taint on passages like this in their overconfidence to make sweeping assertions of what God's will is or is not. I think that just the opposite is actually the case of what Revelation 6 intends. The judgment of God is warning against us making such judgments ourselves. Jesus was always clear on this, judge not lest you be judged. And here, where judgment has begun to come mysteriously and apocalyptically in the devastation of four horsemen, the point is not that we get to sit powerfully removed, judging the world for what they've done. Instead, the politics of Jesus claim the opposite to be true. We ourselves are worthy of judgment, and judgment could only be averted through the sacrifice of the Lamb. Standing on the throne, eternally slain. I am not called to judge the world. Instead, I am called to witness and to love the world. And it's possible that my witness will involve my humbling, my defeat, even my very death under the politics of Caesar. And thus, this word in Revelation 6 is offered as a comfort to me Fear not. You do not need to judge the world, for God's own judgment will come. The politics of Jesus affirmed that God, the creator and sustainer of our world, is the one who is trustworthy and good and is worthy of dispensing judgment. It was the very lamb who was slain who is worthy to judge his creation. So this leaves me yet again humbled that the world I live in is shielded from most judgment. If I'm being honest, I have known little of war in my lifetime and always highly removed. I have known little of hunger. A disease like the coronavirus pandemic is the exception, not the norm, and it has understandably shocked our global consciousness because it has confronted us that our politics and our lives are not really under our control. We may be uncomfortable with the ideas of war, violence, pestilence, and judgment, but is it not reassuring that such calamities are not outside the purview of God, but instead are within the restraining control and even mercy? of one who can hold back that which we otherwise deserve? Is there perhaps even a comfort, not for the privileged like myself who sit comfortably atop the Western world of the 21st century, but instead a comfort for the vulnerable and the suffering, that God's judgment will respond in God's timing to the injustices that they've endured? I even, at times, wonder about my own historical privilege. I know so little about a world at threat a world in which famine is a real possibility, or war is a necessary reality. Yet I sometimes wonder what even my own grandfather, only two generations removed, who, on my dad's side, was a plumber on the East Coast and fought in World War II flying B-17 bombers, what would he have made of this passage? Could it perhaps have resonated differently to one familiar with such wars? Would it have comforted him in a way that to me just feels strange, isolating and removed. This is one of those strong Bible moments that every Christian should at some point encounter. Do I know the mind of God? Do I fully understand the strange and complex forces that make up human history? Do I really believe I could or should be the one to establish justice or dictate how God should enact judgment? Revelation is a big picture type of book. It has bold, strange visions that disrupt our expectations to reorient us to God's work in the world. We've been covering a lot of diverse ground in this episode, but I think in this following passage, the fifth seal, this is where Revelation and the politics of Jesus come together. So this is what Revelation 6, 9 to 11 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The fifth seal is going to reveal an altar, one that immediately brings to mind the imagery of the temple and the sacrifices that were taking place in the presence of God. Yet under the altar, instead of goats or sheeps, we find the souls of those who had been slain for the word and for the witness they had borne. Perhaps you've heard enough about Christian martyrs to not be moved by this scene. Yet John will convey the power of emotion as they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? All this week I've been pondering this scene. Who were those souls? Who are these souls? The ones who had been slain for the word of God and witness that they had borne. Can you imagine the pressure on those souls? The fear, the questions that would have been asked of them, the sacrifices that they would have had to make. What interests me is those who have been slain have not given up their call for justice. In fact, for how powerful and real grace is made in Jesus Christ, Nowhere in scripture does God abandon justice. We instead are told that justice is always taken up by God, and sometimes the cost is paid by himself. Here, however, a costly comfort will be offered to the slain. We're told that they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In the following chapter, Revelation 7, you'll find a list of the 144,000 who are sealed, 12,000 from each tribe. The number is depicted as an Old Testament army would have been counted. Yet John is going to note this in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. These are the ones who even in death have been clothed in white. These are the ones with palm branches and hands here to herald not their own victory, but the victory of their God. Salvation belongs to our God, they proclaim, who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So here's where this episode comes together. John is giving a picture of future vindication to those presently suffering under the complex weight of political pressure and in some places real bodily persecution. Contrary to what some have claimed, Christians in America are not currently being bodily persecuted. Yet in a partisan world, we are constantly being triggered to retaliate against our perceived enemies. The reason you feel under threat from the opposing party is because you have been conditioned by your party and theirs to see the other as the one posing risk to you. And while we may not be experiencing bodily harm at the hand of our government, we are certainly living in a highly contested, highly divisive, and often retaliating world. So what then is Revelation's vision? As we'll cover in our next episode, there will be moments for resistance. In fact, the gathering of the 144,000 in Revelation reflects the growing justice the Lord plans on enacting. Yet in the politics of Jesus, strikingly, we never hear the call to immediate retaliation. Never. Even when the world feels contested, even when Christians feel threatened, Jesus invites you to lay down your arms, offer your other cheek, and share your other cloak. Jesus teaches us the way of non-retaliation. So what does that mean for our politics? It means that we as Christians become the ones who extend apologies, offer forgiveness, and bear the cost of non-retaliation, even in a partisan world. Are you tracking with this in Revelation? Have you counted this cost in your own call to follow Jesus? That you would lay down your life in non retaliation, especially in politics. The 144,000 are the ones who are slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They are the ones who know there is a great need for justice. They cry out for it. But they, these saints of non retaliation, are the ones who laid down their life because they trusted in the judgment and the justice of God and were therefore given a white robe, and told to rest a little longer until your number should be complete. John is trying to tell us, the saints are waiting for you. The saints are waiting on you to join them. There was a story I always heard growing up of Nate Saint and Jim Elliot, two men who would offer their lives as martyrs for God. Now, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint were not perfect men, And perhaps they both have been over-mythologized, as many martyrs in our celebrity culture can sometimes be. Yet in a moving cinematic rendering of Nate Saint's life in a film called The End of the Spear, we're invited into the scene where these four Wheaton College graduates, because of their love of the gospel and the seriousness with which they wanted to live the politics of Jesus, were in Ecuador and their attempt to build relationships with local tribes by delivering food and medical supplies. And sharing with them the good news of Jesus. Yet, unexpectedly, tragically, all four of these men were killed by the tribe when a relationship went sour. So, the movie, as only movies can do, gives you this scene the scene where the four men begin to realize there's trouble. One of them is going to glance back at the plane, and you can almost tell he's considering whether or not to grab a gun or any kind of weapon to defend themselves. As this clear threat from these tribesmen begins to emerge. And yet, intentionally, as only movies can do, you see Nate and Jim and the other two men realize what's about to happen. And instead of tensing or defending or even running, they just stand and receive the death that has come for them. They embrace the violence upon themselves. Even in the moment, you can see. They're extending this radical forgiveness through their commitment to non-retaliation, a willingness to die so that others may live. Jim Elliot is most known for the quote he was often to repeat, where he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These men and their wives and their children lived in this scene and for the rest of their lives the politics of Jesus. When these families are embraced before the throne, they not only will receive white robes and the rest that Jesus offers. We're told later in perhaps one of my favorite passages in Revelation that comes not at the end, but right here in Revelation 7, describing what God is going to offer to all the saints gathered in white robes before his throne says this in verse 15 to 17. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How else could we so radically live the challenge of non-retaliation. Who else could we trust, not only to enact the justice we've been longing for, but to heal the wounds caused by our accusers? Only the Lamb in the midst of the throne, only the God who has known our tears. So each week we're talking about a concrete way we can live the politics of Jesus. Remember, politics are not abstract policies or nominated officials. They are embodied and tangible public acts we offer for the good of our communities. And this is where we really have gotten something wrong as Christians in America. Our politics are not about defending ourselves or our policies. They are not about defending politicians. For politics to truly follow the politics of Jesus, our politics must relentlessly embody the non-retaliation of Jesus. What does this look like? I think we first need to acknowledge that our political preferences are not perfect. It's the reason why I took us on such a deep dive of Jonathan Haidt's research. They have been shaped and reinforced by imperfect powers and led by imperfect people. If we can acknowledge that to be a Christian is not to be a Republican or Democrat or any other party, this would allow us, when our political preference is criticized, even when it's about earthly policies like abortion, Racial reconciliation, welfare, environmental sustainability, health care, police reform, any earthly policy, when it is attacked, when it is criticized, we can resist the need to rush to defend ourselves. Now, I know, I know, the politics of non-retaliation sound hopelessly naive. Do I not realize that Jesus cares about all the policies that we care about? Do I not realize that Christians need to speak up about tangible policies and politics? That Christians need to seek justice in the present, and that sometimes seeking justice means speaking out, perhaps even defending or debating policy reforms in our current political moment. Of course, I recognize all of that. But here's my question for you this episode What does the world need more of, especially in our social media age? Does it need more Christians arguing over policies, voicing their distaste and displeasure? attacking other posts that they theologically or socially or politically disagree with online? Or does the world need more Christians who embody a politic of non-retaliation, who are willing to be denounced, criticized, critiqued, even abused, rather than retaliate with anger, hatred, vengeance, or violence? There's a wonderful study done of the early church by an Oxford historian named Larry Hurtado Called The Destroyer of the Gods. And in this book, he notes the five key practices that separated the Christian communities from Roman society, and yet by their very radical political nature, upended the Roman society and flipped paganism on its head. These five political practices, he notes, were one, caring for the poor, two, was a radical multicultural ethnicity where Jews and Gentiles ate together, three, was politics where Christians would care for the children abandoned at birth, orphaned in the trash heaps. And five was a radical sexual ethic where rather than the wealthy and powerful being able to sleep with whoever they wanted, Christians lived out this covenantal faithfulness between spouses. Those were the first four. Yet there was a fifth, and one could argue it was perhaps the strongest public politic that Christians embodied. Larry Hurtado notes it was a politic Of non retaliation, where Christians were willing, even to the point of persecution, torture, and death, to not retaliate to the violence they were receiving and instead to faithfully proclaim Jesus is Lord. Tim Keller, the pastor from New York City, observed that these five politics of the early church tend to align quite nicely with how the left and the right lean today. Those first two policies, Of Christians caring for the poor and valuing a multi-ethnic inclusion seem to reflect the left, while the second two policies of caring for the unborn and a conservative sexual ethic seem to reflect the right. However, as Tim Keller notes, neither party seems to operate well with the fifth policy, a politic of non-retaliation. What if we could be the people of God, who did not respond in anger when our politics were questioned judged, attacked, or condemned? What if we could acknowledge our own politics as limited and likely flawed in unexpected ways? As Christians who care, inevitably, sometimes we would find ourselves in debates, sometimes we would advocate, sometimes we would perhaps even argue, pressing points, changing minds. Yet what if, instead of victory, we would prioritize a posture of listening? an attitude of forgiveness, and a commitment to humility when it came to our political discourse. What if we were willing to bear wrongs done to us, rather than constantly correcting the wrongs we find in others? And what if we were willing to give what we could not keep in order to gain something more that we could not lose by embodying non-retaliation every time a wrong was done to us? i know that i will not likely ever suffer bodily harm for my faith but i have begun to ponder and pray as i've been sitting with revelation 7 what my life would need to look like if jesus were to robe me in white alongside the great witnesses of the faith and i think it would mean suffering the scorn and shame of others with patience with forgiveness and with love so friends my prayer for you is that we would lay down our lives in the present so that we could be robed together one day in white. This has been The Burning Word with John Perine. Until next time, grace and peace.